0: This is not Shankar and you're listening to The Real Finance Mentor Podcast from TheRealFinanceMentor.com The Real Finance Mentor is your go-to resource for insight and inspiration on careers in finance, CFA and more. Now you would think, why this podcast? Well, my goal is to deliver insight and inspiration for your finance career by making it 1. Relatable. This is not theoretical stuff. We zero in on the critical, practical issues. Number 2. Authentic. No bullshit. No sidestepping. The topics guests and questions are all from that perspective and number three take a child account and cfa charter holder at 17 plus years as a corporate warrior mixing 10 years of entrepreneurship through a decade of full-time cfa training as speaking mentoring cycling and mountaineering and that's me welcome to the real finance mentor or as i call it rfm hi everyone um, good afternoon And uh, welcome to another episode of The Real Finance Mentor podcast, the podcast that brings you insight and inspiration for your finance careers. As you know, I've been looking high and wide for the right speakers on a variety of topics, ranging from asset management and analysis and equity research to soft skills, um, to coaching. So today's episode, um, I'm going to bring another special guest and the guest today is someone I've known for quite a long while that I finally got him to speak um, and tape him on, on this uh, episode. Uh, my guest is John Perry and Dr. John Perry, to be specific. John Perry is uh, head of psychology at Mary Immaculate College in Ireland. having previously been Dean of Faculty of Arts there. Prior to moving to Ireland, John worked at three UK universities. He's got 15 years experience in lecturing in psychology. His main research areas are mental toughness, coping with stress, sportsmanship, and statistical methods. And his research has been published in numerous international journals and presented at many conferences. To date, John has published around 60 peer-reviewed research articles, which by the way is a lot because I know what I go through when I write one article for a magazine, right? Uh, John has also published his first sole authored book, uh, Sports Psychology, a complete introduction, uh, four years ago, which is one of the best-selling sports psychology books of the last decade. John is also on the editorial board of several psychology journals and works as an associate editor. In applied work, John has worked as a sports psychologist with elite teams, athletes from a range of sports. He's utilized this ability to help people reach their potential by delivering mental toughness training to educators, health workers, bankers, and government ministries. On his education, he comes with a significant prestigious degree. John has a B.Sc. Honours in Sports and Exercise Sciences with Psychology from the University of Gloucestershire. He's got an M.Sc. in Sports and Exercise Sciences from the University of Wales in Cardiff. He has a P.G.C. from the University of Huddersfield. And of course, he's got a PhD in Psychology From the University of Hull. So he's not a finance person, Um, he's he's not an asset manager or an analyst or a CFO or a CEO, but he's got some interesting ideas about mindsets and mental toughness and employability and careers. It's exactly why I invite him today. So welcome to the show, John.
1: Thanks, Bernard. Yeah, it's a a pleasure to uh, be able to at least virtually meet up again and uh talk about some of the things we're going to
0: I know it's been what like uh, seven years since I was in your mental toughness uh, licensed user training class in Dubai
1: yeah I know you sent me the message of the the notes uh, like you, I I would be terrible at filing notes you managed yeah. to pick out um, some handwritten notes from a particular workshop from 2013 I mean uh it, I, guess that's, I guess that's a good sign if you teach. If yeah, you well, I'm a qualified accountant, John, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you expect?
0: Yeah. Right, so let me dive into the questions here. Now, it seems that your journey into psychology started as a sports person, from what you told me earlier, and I think that's quite appropriate because sports and especially competitive sports is probably where the study of high performance and mental toughness began in a scientific manner. But John, most sports people don't end up with a PhD in psychology. So my questions: are uh, one is, of course, what sport did you start with? But probably more importantly is, what drove your interest in psychology?
1: Yeah, so it, you're quite right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be a typical route into psychology. Um, I was, like, like a lot of young boys, I was mad on football. So I supported my home team. Rimsby Town um, we're not very good but uh, it's I, I sometimes think supporting teams who aren't very good it, it means the the devastating lows make the, the the highs that come along once in a blue moon all the more sweeter um, and I remember I, I was at a game I was I, I was in my late teens 1998 it would have been and we were near the bottom of the league and we were playing against West Bromwich Albion who were a team near the top of the league. And we had five or six players that used to play for the other team in our team. And we were not expected to, to do anything. We were expected to lose comfortably. Uh, by the time halftime came around, my team Grimsby were winning 4-0 against this team who were near the top of the league. And, and I remember what was interesting was they just went and blew the other team away. They found an extra gear, and these were committed players. These were players who, every week, you would not fault their commitment, their effort. They, you could, you can tell when a player is trying their very best. And I, I would, I'd stand there watching them week after week. They'd normally lose, but there's no doubt they were trying their absolute best. And then on this occasion where there was a real point to prove, there was an added incentive there. They'd been sold by a team, you know, kind of discarded, like they weren't good enough. So they had a point to prove. And they found that extra gear. And that's what sort of first got me really interested because I thought we, we often think about the way that you can try your best as if it's something that you have control over, you know, the, the amount of effort that you put in. But here I'm watching people who no doubt try their best every week but really I wonder what they're doing is they try to try their best and on this occasion where there was another motive there that wasn't normally there, they got a whole new level and that's sort of what first gripped me. So when inevitably I was told I was never going to be good enough to make a living playing football... um, I went off to university and I, I wanted to study sports science but I was so interested in the psychology from seeing those kind of things that I studied it as a, as a joint honours. And then I, I went on and I carried on doing, doing both subjects um, and I worked in sports science for a little bit but, but ultimately I realised that for all of the effort spent watching videos and analysing them and Um, drawing skeletons on the screen which we do a lot of in sports science I thought I can talk to these people (laughs) and I can make a bigger difference I I, I can tell somebody that they're good and give them a hug and tell them they're important and make a bigger difference than I can through hours and hours of video analysis so from that point on I kind of became much more committed to the psychology part and I really enjoyed the fact that so much of it is difficult to explain and it's intangible, but you know that it's real, because we've all felt times where we can do everything and we felt times where we feel useless. And um, and that's the thing that's always really grabbed me.
0: Interesting, and since you mentioned, you know, how they raised their game, uh, and at that point it just clicked in that match, didn't it? And, but it must have been immensely stressful. and. Generally speaking, John, competitive sports is quite stressful. I mean, I record reading the Chimp Paradox, um, and I think Kevin Peterson's autobiography, and the hell that a professional batsman has to go through in cricket. Uh, It never struck me that the the, the fact of rock hard pitches and hostile bowlers, constant sledging, massive angry crowds, unsupportive teammates, (laughs) you have a critical media. I mean... All adds a huge amount of pressure and a lot of people break. Some people survive. So my question is, how is the study of sports useful for us to understand how people deal with pressure? And now I'm talking about pressure at the workplace or pressure in writing exams or in academics. How do the big boys handle pressure? Because you have seen teams and you have coached individual players as well over the last many years. So what's your take on this?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, sport is... I, I think the real value in studying sport isn't actually just to help sport people do better at their sport. Um, I, uh, there's, there's not much value in us trying to help a multi-millionaire golfer earn an extra couple of million. Um, but the real value in it comes from the lessons we can learn and apply to other parts of our lives, as your question suggests. And and sport's interesting because as a researcher, it contrives these stressful situations where we don't get these naturally occurring in everyday life. But sport is like a laboratory that sets the perfect conditions to stress people out. So if we take the cricketing example, okay? Um, So if you're batting in cricket, you've got some simple aims. Firstly, to not lose your wicket. and Secondly, to score score. But sport, it, if sport left it as too simple, it would be um, it would be very entertaining to watch. So we put rules in place to make it harder. Like um, if you go out of your crease, you could be stomped, or you know you could be caught, and so on. Uh, so we have rules in place. We then um, have opponents, and we match those opponents to a level that is set to be challenging. You know, we have different leagues and different structures. So really, sport contrives this setting that the whole point of it is to induce stress because inducing stress means inducing uncertainty and that's what's entertaining in sport. We we don't want to watch a sport where we know who's going to win, we know the outcome of it. What's most entertaining is when there's, significant uncertainty and what's interesting there is uncertainty is the most common source of stress not knowing what's going to happen is stressful so that's what I mean by this kind of lab scenario where sport sets up the perfect time to stress people out to put them under pressure and then it tells us where and when we can find them so it's perfect for that on the second part of the question was about how how, we, uh, how the big boys handle the pressure. And the first thing I would say is not all of them do. And, and sometimes you can get very successful athletes, but that doesn't mean that psychologically they're particularly skillful. Um, some people have a tremendous technique and even if physically they aren't the best or psychologically aren't the best, they can, that can carry them through. Equally, you'll see some players who don't quite have the technique. So to carry on with the cricket example, there's been many players over the years who've had very successful careers with just a handful of shots because technically they're not as gifted as others, but mentally they're incredibly strong. And they put a value on the wicket. They make it really hard to get out. I'm aware a lot of a lot of the listeners or viewers here are, are from India. So, of course, you guys had Raul Dravid, The Wall, You who's one of the most mentally tough performers you can imagine. Um, But for every kind of Raul Dravid there is, uh, think of other ones like Shivering Paul in the West Indies. There are other players who who don't actually cope with it well. I don't think that top sports people necessarily handle pressure any better than than most people do. That would be my anecdotal experience in, in being around them. The difference is we notice the ones that are successful, um, and we discard the ones who, who are less successful. And controversially, I, I'm not convinced that sport actually develops characters as well as we think it does. I, I think it actually selects characters. So if you're good at it, you tend to carry on, and if you're not good at it, you, you tend to fall away. So in terms of how the big boys in sport handle pressure, I'd say generally, no better than the average person and no different to the average person, really.
0: It's interesting you mentioned um, about sports and the role it plays in developing character because there's always been this saying that uh, the British Empire was built on the cricket fields of Eton, (laughs) 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 meaning that uh, a few people were picked up, selected, uh, quite rightly, and groomed to demonstrate certain um, skills and they had certain traits and that was just made better through teamwork this demonstrated on the cricket field or somewhere else. So interesting, interesting analogy. But I wanna move on to education because uh, you are a college lecturer. I was a financial trainer. So let's talk about education. I was reading a recent book called Messengers by Joseph Marx and Stephen Martin. Now, I'll quote this particular section from the book, and I'm sure it'll uh, connect with you. A better understanding of how our minds work may lead us to becoming more aware of the pitfalls that await us. Consequently, it might be useful for people to learn earlier rather than later in life how their brains operate. At the age of 16, students in most countries take exams in subjects such as maths, English, and the sciences. Psychology rarely features. Indeed, while just over 40% of students in countries, including the US and the UK, study geography for at least two years by the age of 16, only 2% study psychology. It's a fact that most people leave school without a basic education in basic psychology. Now, why is this? More importantly, is it changing and how? Because we don't use much math or geography or biology or social sciences when you work uh, in your your adult life. But psychology is something that, you know, the way your brain works is something that you must be intimately familiar with, or at least be familiar with the basics. So Uh, what is your view as a qualified, trained psychologist, uh, psychometrician and a college lecturer?
1: Yeah, this, this, this is something that I, I feel very strongly about. Actually, we, we have such an antiquated education system globally. Um, you, you mentioned some of the sort of mathematical elements and things like that. I remember, I remember spending a significant portion of time in school learning about Pythagoras yet as an adult, I've never once found myself stood in a position where there appears to be some sort of triangle and I know the length of two sides and I need to calculate the length of the other side. Um, and, and you do wonder if there are more useful things that that I could be learning. Uh, apologies to any real uh, passionate Pythagoras enthusiasts out there. Um, so the the system that we have was largely something that came about during the Industrial Revolution. It was what we needed at, at the time. Uh, so these kind of subjects were were set in place, and there was some uh, science and uh, technology and engineering and maths and arts subjects and that was seen as giving this well-rounded education. But that was a long time ago. At the time we, we didn't really talk about um, the self and um, we certainly didn't talk about psychology, we didn't really talk about health, we didn't talk about relationships. Now I think if, if I was to go into a, a nursing home and ask people there what's important. I think they're going to say family and health. You know, we, didn't, we don't learn about these things in school. How is uh, health and relationships and yourself not the three main topics <laughs> that, that you do in school? And the fact that we don't do any psychology, I, I think does, does young people a great injustice in terms of the the transferable thinking skills that it develops and i'm not talking about psychology in a way of memorizing that there were certain experiments done by certain people on certain dates i'm talking about being aware of ourselves knowing who we are knowing that when i respond in a certain way why do i respond in that way i want to make meaning of that Maybe I respond in that way because I have a particular insecurity based on some previous memories and things like that. And while I can't go back in time and change those memories, at least when I respond, I know that's why I feel this way. I know that's why I'm acting that way. I also think that means that when other people respond in certain ways to a situation, rather than me dismissing the way that they've responded because I wouldn't do that, I understand that whether they're conscious of it or not, there's meaning, there's reason why people behave the way they behave. And the more I can understand how I do that, and also recognize that there's reasons why other people behave the way they behave, um, whether I understand it or not, I don't know, but I know that it exists, then that makes me such a more rounded person. Think about how I'm gonna deal with stresses and strains in life, or how I'm going to manage my interpersonal interactions with other people, or how I'm going to be able to work in a team, based on just having this awareness of myself, what what my own responses are, where they come from, and recognizing that other people uh, have their own responses too, and having that kind of compassion in that sense. Um, so I've I, I've <laughs> I'd be very um, scathing, I suppose, of our our current educational structures, um, because they, they are the way they are because that's how they've always been, it seems. If, if we reinvented school now, it, it would be very, very different.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and very interestingly, going, going, back, going back to what you said earlier, John, in terms of the three things that you need to know, right, which you, don't, you never get to know in school, your health, about your relationship with other people, and about yourself, Now talk about yourself, and you made another very interesting comment about why do you act the way you do act? Or why do you think the way you think? Knowing that is extremely important. And of course, over the last couple of decades, you've had lots of tools that allows you to do just that, right? I mean, one of your specialties is as a uh, psychometrician. Now there are lots of psychometric tests and tools out there like the Myers-Briggs type indicator, quite the controversial MBTI. Uh, DISC, there is Hogan, there is the ocean test that looks at the big five personality traits. And of course, there's the mental toughness trait that tests that just some of the many out there. Now, my question is for someone starting on the journey of self-awareness, you know, as in trying to find out why he's acting or thinking the way he is. This can seem quite confusing and paralyzing as to where should he or she start and why?
1: That is, it's, it's a great question. And it's not a it's not an easy one to to answer in the sense because there are a tremendous amount of psychometric tests out there, but there also exists this really large gap between research and practice, um, and and with that comes a, a gap between essentially evidence and practice. So you could almost think of this as being in a in a quadrant where there are. There are some things for which there are very little evidence, and there's very little practice. Something like phrenology, for example, you know, where people feel the bumps on someone's head. There's there's no real evidence for it, and no one really does it anymore. Um, there's also uh, things where there's lots of evidence, but it doesn't. We don't really see it much in practice. Um, so, for example, I, without being a, an expert on it, but we, climate science, climate change, and environmental science there's tremendous amounts of evidence but does our behavior really match that evidence? Probably not. And there would, there's a lot of psychometric tools that exist in research, so there's a lot of evidence, but they're never really commodified and they're never packaged and used as products so they don't make it into the, the wider system. So I think there's there's one area there where people could look at um, are there other avenues that haven't been made into products and used carrying on this quadrant of course there are things where there's lots of practice and there's very little evidence for it Um, you mentioned the MBTI for example Um, (laughs) and I know that is kind of controversial and I'm aware that some people may have spent significant amount of money in training themselves to to do it and uh, it's not to say that um, the whole thing is a waste of time, but no researchers are out there using the MBTI. It, it, as a researcher, I never see it. Only when I step into the applied world do I do I ever come across it. Um, in a similar sense, it would be, I, I guess my parallel there would be something like homeopathy, you know, that there's no real evidence that dissolving a drop of onion juice into water, diluting it a thousand times, will make any difference but people do it um and then in the top of that quadrant you've got things for which there are a lot of evidence and it is used widely in in practice um and these would be some of the better psychometrics out there i suppose another of my analogy towards that would be the way that people say uh smoking cessation for example loads loads more people used to smoke loads of evidence to say actually smoking is very bad for your health, and now far, far fewer people smoke than they used to. That's where we've got lots of evidence and uh, it's affecting practice. And that's kind of the sweet spot. That's where we really wanna be, but we're often not there. We're actually either in the, there's lots of evidence, but because it's never turned into a product, it only exists in research, and only researchers know about it, or there's things that nobody researches but they've been turned into very marketable products with glossy brochures, <laughs> um, and they're used frequently. Now, in terms of where you start and why, I'd recommend that people search databases. So things like Google Scholar, for example, um, you can you can select whether you want things to be peer reviewed. If if you search Google Scholar and there's very few Uh, articles in the last five years or ten years that use a particular psychometric scale that would be a red flag um, because if researchers aren't using it why aren't they using it and often it's because they have got some concerns about it there's also other red flags as well Um, I I guess my phrase I would go to would be that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence Um, i often see particular psychological models or psychometric tools that make huge claims and really people don't develop quickly you don't you don't change a person uh, by talking to them for an hour um, it takes time also a lot of these models they make something sound simple i've never met a person in my life that I think god that's a really simple person (laughs) like people are incredibly complicated why we are the way we are why we think the way we do feel the way we do act the way we do and then all that changes when you put us in a different situation we're so complicated so any psychological model that is going to make some sort of claim about being able to explain these ridiculously complicated beings has to be quite complicated. So I guess uh, to sort of summarise my advice there, it would be if you come across a particular psychometric search for it. Look, Can you find evidence that it's used in peer review articles? Um, and secondly do the claims sound realistic if they if they're claiming to change someone's life around in a matter of days or weeks then i I, i've become very skeptical very quickly Um, and thirdly does the complexity of them really represent what i know to be the complexity of a human and i I think they're a starting point interesting john that you mentioned
0: uh conscientiousness right i mean Professor Jordan Peterson also mentioned this as one of the two factors, um, especially uh, industriousness, because uh, conscientiousness has two bits, right? Orderliness and industriousness. And it says industriousness is one of the two factors essential for success, the other being IQ. Now, how does one develop this crucial trait of uh, conscientiousness, which I've actually seen even in the mental toughness literature? I've read about meditation, I've read about mindfulness, helping you to concentrate and control impulse, impulses. Um, any other tips uh, that you can give for people to develop their uh, extent of um
1: I'll try, but in all honesty, I, I don't think there's much you can really do to develop these kinds of traits. This is why I, I often raise a few eyebrows if I talk uh, positive psychology conference which I do quite regularly um, because sometimes I feel like I'm dealing in negative psychology saying that you can't (laughs) Um, uh, but as much as I like positive psychology and I like the notion of focusing on maximizing our potential rather than the traditional sort of clinical models of, of fixing problems I do think we sometimes fall into this trap of thinking that as long as you try you know you dream it and believe it that you can achieve anything it makes for a nice meme on instagram you know a person running on a beach at sunset in the background or something um but i i I think that's a bit of a fallacy because a, a lot of whether we're able to be industrious um organized is is tied to kind of predispositions really Um, And we sometimes think that it's a matter of free will Because we like to think that um, to put effort in and to work hard is our choice Um, But really, that's quite contradictory to our understanding Of a lot of the traits that you need to have to be able to work hard So we know that things like conscientiousness is quite a stable trait develop but it develops slowly over years um and we know things like attentional control for example and uh, on the mental toughness scale things like commitment have been tied to certain parts of the brain where if there's more gray matter in the precuneus which is in the parietal lobe we're more likely to be able to stay on task for longer and things um so knowing that so much of the the things we require to be able to be industrious um, are genetically informed. then I think actually it's what becomes unhelpful is to see it as something that we have complete control over and we can choose to put more work in or just concentrate for longer. Um, because then that makes us feel like we're lazy when we don't. And, and that's actually quite debilitating. Whereas when you don't have the energy, whether that's emotional energy, physical energy, mental energy to put work into something, you're being a normal human being. Because if you want to work hard to achieve you know, better exam results, for example, that, that's not a life or death situation and the brain knows that's not a life or death situation. So why would it spend all of its energy on it? Um, so the most human thing is to relax a bit and to work less time. Now, I'm conscious that you did ask for, for tips. I think rather than trying to change these highly stable traits, the best thing to do is to understand them. Um, so it's okay to not be good at something, uh, but you've, if you understand it you find a a workaround for it you behind you find a a behavioral strategy that it kind of bypasses <laughs> uh the requirement for this so to give you a, a a a personal example i'm awful at concentrating on things like I, which is is you know i, I can write a Eighty thousand word book or a phd thesis or or whatever but i'm actually terrible at concentrating um so i'm not naturally that good at controlling impulses i'm very hedonistic um i like things right now i don't like the idea of uh, sitting down and approaching really long tasks because i'll get bored and i'll lose focus That's that's not ideal for a lot of my work that i do um But the the strength is not about changing that. It's not about changing my um, concentration capacity, but it's about recognising that that's an area that I'm not great at. And because I know that, I'm able to come up with behavioural workarounds. So what I do is I, I am very good at managing stress. So I multitask. I take on lots of different projects and I do them all at once. So when I do get bored of one thing, I put it down and I pick something else up. So I'm still being productive. So even though I don't have great concentration skills, I still manage to be as productive by just finding that that workaround. And I think better, people are better at finding the kind of occupations, the things you'll do that you're better at that reward you, and they're going to suit you best rather than trying to, Necessarily change that element of who you are.
0: It's funny you say that, John, because when you said you're terrible at concentrating on something for long, that you're a headless, dialect things right now. That's not the picture I've got over the last seven years. <laughs> I mean, in my mind, you are yeah. this fanatically focused, super intense person with infinite patience and <laughs> concentration skills, right? As a researcher. Yeah, it-
1: it's all smoke and mirrors, Bernard. It's all a, a mirage. But that's because I'll, I'll, I'll have 10 different projects on the go at once. Um, so by the time all 10 come out, they'll be the same standard as if I'd worked really diligently on one and then finished it and then moved on to the next. So I get there in the end. But uh, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm not what you might have pictured in that respect.
0: Let's talk about employability, John, which is actually one of my four focus, focus areas and a big issue for job seekers even well before this COVID pandemic broke out. And I was very interested, I think, towards the end of the book, Developing Mental Toughness, which talks about a 2010 survey that linked mental toughness with employability of as in enhancing the capacity of people to get the jobs that they want. Now, again, of course, I'm gonna ask the same familiar question Uh, Which I asked before, I'm hoping to hear a different answer from you, uh, which I probably I won't get, but I'm going to try anyway, which is, which are the four pillars of um, mental toughness you think are the most important when it comes to getting a job, i.e. employability and why?
1: Yeah, I I feel like a politician avoiding questions on uh, on these kind of things. Um, So I'm not going to pick one. (laughs) Uh, i'm going to say again it's the interactions um between those those pillars that matter so for example uh if you were really high on challenge but had low emotional control you would probably take on loads of tasks you would say yes i'll do this i'll do that yes i'll take this on but then you wouldn't be able to manage the stress that comes with it because the emotional aspect of that you don't have control over so you end up Sometimes being um, uh, taken on more than more than you can actually handle in that respect. So, I don't think it's about being particularly strong in an area, but it's about having that uh, that that balance there. Um, so that's just one example of how it might work. There. Just interestingly, on on the study you talk about there, um, I I would love to see. Uh, some really, and we're in the process of doing some really good longitudinal research because uh, that that study was cross-sectional, so it shows uh, association between employability and how well people have uh, where they are in their career, whether they're senior managements, middle managers, uh management, administrative, or clerical. Um, but what I've always thought is is that a bi-directional relationship or is one more of a predictor than the other? For example, the senior managers were more mentally tough than the middle managers, who were more mentally tough than the junior managers. Now, what I would really like to know is, were they always that way? Were they they always really mentally tough? And that's why they became senior managers. Or did their experiences um, in junior management move them up a little bit on mental toughness. And then their experience in middle management, move them up again that little bit more. And I suspect it's probably a bit of both.
0: And here I was hoping for a simple direct answer. (laughs) 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 Which I suppose, jokes apart, is of course um, naive to expect that in psychology as as we talked about earlier.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, of course, I want to talk about uh, a key topic that I keep seeing in at work and in class and among my mentees as well. And that topic or that pillar of mental toughness is confidence. Because most of the youngsters I meet in class or via LinkedIn or even otherwise are from the Indian subcontinent. And a lot of them are quiet and nerdy for lack of a better word. And I get that because I was like that myself once, you know, I I changed when I was 19. That's probably a different uh, discussion we can have. I suspect this lack of confidence stems from thoughts that they will not sound good, especially in English, which is not their native tongue. And a lot of them didn't go to school or college uh, in English medium, as we call it in the subcontinent. Or this lack of confidence may stem from thoughts that they will look like an idiot in front of everyone. This issue can persist well past this, you know, uh, young adult, uh, teenage or young professional stage And I've seen that persist all the way to their 30s and even their 40s and probably even beyond. So how can people build up the confidence to at least speak up? And I know public speaking has always been mentioned as the top or the first or one of the top three fears of the average human being. But how can they build up the confidence to speak up? Because you find, John, that whether it's career or relationships or academics, if you don't speak up, you don't get what you want, what you deserve
1: yeah it's uh i i often think you know wouldn't it be a tremendous superpower if you were able to travel back in time and put your present mindset into the mind of your younger self um because when you're when you're 12 the things you worry about when you're 16 you think they're silly and you if you could implant that you wouldn't worry and then when you're 21, you would go back and you'd implant that mindset in the 16 year old and say, why, why would I worry about these kind of things? And when you're 35, you'd go to your 21 year old self and say, What are you worrying about? And I, I kind of feel like that probably goes on forever. Um, there's so many antecedents, you know, so many causes towards where we get confidence. So I'll, if I pick up on a, on a couple, so Firstly, it's important to always remember that we live inside our own heads, okay? Um, we don't experience what other people are experiencing. And often, therefore, it can feel like um, what we're experiencing as if everybody's seeing it and as if it's really important to them as well. If you're giving a, a talk at a conference or you know, somewhere publicly... The extent to which you're concentrating on how you're coming across, I mean, that is severely diluted for the audience. The audience aren't evaluating you nearly as much as you would be evaluating yourself. Um, So when we feel inadequate at something, we tend to make this assumption that everyone else is fine. Everyone else has got everything together and they're doing well, whereas they don't. Everybody else is also... Uh, got things that they feel inadequate about or they're not sure about. Um, And experience experience teaches us that uh, we're all winging it one way or the other. I don't know if that's a phrase that we use across the world, but you know, we're all making it up as we go along. Um, For example, when you're, like I'm a a new parent, I have a one year old. Um, When I was a child, I thought that parents knew everything about being parents and then you become a parent and think I don't know anything <laughs> about being a parent my parents were probably the same, they probably didn't know either um, so we, we sort of we, we learn to understand that um, this level of feeling uncomfortable or inadequate at something is normal actually I, I'm not strange for feeling that way everybody feels that way about something so as a simple thought test I often think when you were. 10 or 20 years younger you know you, you probably thought you'd be grown up you'd have all your stuff together you'd be really sensible by uh, you know a certain age and then you get to that age and you think no I still feel young and you get to the next stage and mentally at least anyway the knees are starting to go but mentally you think yeah I still feel young um, and the, the second thing I would pick up on when it comes to confidence is we live in a really highly future-oriented world, um, and some of us are, are naturally more comfortable with the future. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm a headness. I'm very much the the here and the here and now. Um, so at work, at the moment with the pandemic on, lots of people uh, don't really know what the next semester is going to be like, um, and the future-oriented people would be nervous and anxious about that i'm okay because <laughs> i take the point of we'll figure it out as we go along um so when people are future oriented you're constantly making predictions about the future um and that's the real knob of what confidence is we look to the past we find pieces of information and we use that to predict the future if we're optimistic we think the future is going to work out well and therefore we become confident. And if we're pessimistic, we feel the future is probably not going to work out well. So our future prediction is negative and we become less confident. And that underpins kind of confidence in how we go about things, whether we approach tasks or whether we uh, avoid them. And we don't have to think like that. Um, we, can, we can remove these obsessions with the future and remove these obsessions with dwelling on the past. And I, I think this is why mindfulness is such a popular mm. uh, tool to use, because it brings people in into the present, which means if you're present-oriented, you're not making predictions about the future. And if we don't make predictions about the future, well, confidence doesn't really matter, because confidence is making future predictions. So it's not all about trying to force yourself to become confident because when i'm confident i'll be able to achieve x maybe actually we just do stuff we enjoy doing and we're good at doing it and then we achieve and then we've got success story which means in the future when we look back to the past we look back at a success and then we've got somewhere and I, i i talk about that all the time with people in sport because. Some, sometimes I'll be working with performers where they they might be taking on someone who is objectively better than them. You know, if if my team I mentioned at the start of this episode were playing against Liverpool or Manchester City, then they can't be confident <laughs> um, because well they're not as good, so they probably will lose. Um, so how do I overcome that? I can't. I can't convince them that they should be confident because that would seem ridiculous. So really what I do is I just focus on the moment and the feeling and think about how does it feel to do things that you are good at and you get some kind of internal feedback and internal reward from doing that. And then you just let the confidence come naturally when good things happen.
0: absolutely. Because, the popular meme or the popular urban legend is that you have to be confident first to be competent at something and to be successful. But suppose in reality, work, life works the other way around, doesn't it? You get good at something and then you develop confidence and then you go get better yeah. from there.
1: Yeah, how, how could you be confident of something you've never done before? And unless you uh, denude <laughs> like it. If, if you're a beginner, at any skill, you you can't be confident at that skill. You might be confident in your ability to learn new skills and to develop new skills, but you're not confident at actually your proficiency at that skill. So you just have to do it and enjoy it and learn from it. And then you'll find out if you have an aptitude for it. And then confidence will stem from that. Sometimes we we do get it the other way around. We feel like the uh, and this comes all the time in where people feel the psychological trait comes first and then that causes sometimes you've just got to do stuff <laughs> yeah. and then experience will shape the psychological trait.
0: Well continuing with employability also we, we know that a person's personality is linked to success or failure in a specific career I mean you see that all the time for example if you score low in extraversion and uh, contentiousness and high neuroticism and also low on the mental toughness score, I bet you'll find it difficult to, uh, you might get into investment banking, but you might find very difficult to stay there because that's a very unpredictable competitive 80 hours a week, high stress client facing career. But what I find John very fascinating, and we talked about that before, what I find fascinating is there's, there's no easily accessible study or tool or test that links what a specific career demands, and there are lots of very popular carriers, so we're not talking about niche carriers, that links what a specific career demands with the person's personality. Now, now why is that the case? Is it because of the complexity or are there tools out there? Uh, either way, more importantly, what I was thinking is what can youngsters do at the start of their careers to ensure a better fit? Because... I see a lot of the misery and um, career issues that people have is intimately linked to the lack of fit between their personality, which is difficult to change, and what that particular job or career demands. Mm.
1: Yeah, um, it's, there's been, there have been many attempts to, to kind of match personality traits um there was a, for example the strong in, interest inventory and holland codes was was one example of a, a psychometric tool that tried to offer this career guidance but they typically don't work and the the reason they don't work is because it sees the relationship between one's personality and the career success as this sort of fairly simple transactional relationship um and there's so many uncontrollable factors Um, that change the experiences that people have. And particularly those early experiences, because I spoke earlier about how we build a narrative from experience. So if you have a negative early experience of something, you might build a narrative around that, that it, you know, why was that? Maybe it was because I'm not very good at something, which means there's a good chance you'll probably never really back yourself to, to go further down that route. So I think what what was interesting about your question there, the way you phrased it was to say career demands and there's different ways of interpreting that. Um, if If the career demands is about specific skills, so being able to concentrate and things like that, I don't think that's as useful. But if the career demands are more focused on situational variables like the culture that you might might have so you mentioned working long hours um if you work in a, a kitchen kitchens tend to be very high pressure with very little tolerance for mistakes so you have to be able to take criticism and things like that um and i i once uh spoke to some people who work in performing arts you know like music and Uh, stage and I thought people in sport could be harsh performing arts brutal Um, so I think it's more of a fit into the culture that you have that's important so if you're if you're quite a sensitive person then working somewhere where um, praise is not particularly forthcoming and criticism is frequent then you're going to find that very difficult now people will know their own industries better than i do um but i think it's more important that it's the the culture of the organization that you're in that you need to fit with personality wise than the nature of the organization you know what the goals of the organization um might be. So um, you, might, you might work for one investment banking firm, where the culture is entirely different to the other. So even though the aims of the company are identical, um, your fit for a personality would be very different.
0: Interesting. Now you talked about mindfulness and focusing on the present. So I want to talk about what we are going through right now, which We are now in this weird pandemic era. And in June, 2020, John, you teamed up with Dr. Michael McKay, um, postdoctoral researcher at the RCSI, to conduct a survey that aims to assess the effects of lockdown on hope, optimism, and psychopathological symptoms, such as anxiety. Quite interesting. And and, and you said, uh, when I checked on the website, see, I do my research, uh, you said, (laughs) While there is no doubting that COVID-19 has been devastating for many people throughout Ireland, for those who have not been closely affected by the pandemic, the pause has provided somewhat of an opportunity for reflection and perspective taking. I think for many, this can be positive. Can you expand on that? How can it be positive?
1: It, yeah, it, it, it's not necessarily what I expected to find, to be honest, but... Um, I have a couple of studies now. One is sport-based and one is general population-based. And what we're finding is, of of course, people who have been dramatically affected by the pandemic, then certainly there's no issue. There's nothing positive um, there. But for many, um, we might not have been ill ourselves or had anybody ill around us um so the the effect really has been a slowing down of life um because we might be working from home or perhaps uh not working for a period of time and and receiving welfare payments in place um and also there's been less to do so people haven't been able to uh go out and do the things they would normally do which means a lot more time for personal reflection um so a common theme that's come up in the two studies we've done is those people that are in that situation of not being affected from a health point of view or the people around them um they may have had this kind of this momentary pause in their career but also a lot of their social life and inevitably whenever we have a pause we begin to reflect and we evaluate so what we're seeing is that that break from the normal routine means that people have started to slow down, think a bit slower um, and reevaluate. So sometimes what happens is we live in this very fast paced world, as I said, future oriented world. So people are setting goals all the time. I'm going to achieve this. I'm going to achieve that. I'm going to achieve something else. Um, and a pause gives people the opportunity to think, Do I, is that still my aim? I set that goal three years ago. Does that life has changed in those three years? Do I still want to do that? Maybe I uh, want to do something else. Maybe I look at the time or the effort or the money that I'm investing in something and, and change a direction. So, I um, mean, in, incidentally, I I think that's true of a lot of goal setting. Um, I'm, I'm I'm not. I'm not a big proponent of goal setting. I know there's a million and one articles and books saying, oh, isn't goal setting wonderful? I think it depends on the individual and on the context. I think sometimes goal setting can be seen as this detrimental model. It's, I want to be at a certain place, therefore, how bad am I? You know, it's, <laughs> you're looking at what you're not rather than reflecting back and looking at where you've been. And I think when people set goals, the most important thing is regular readjustment of those goals. I think when you set a goal, if that goal becomes unattainable or loses relevance over time, it becomes a source of stress or strain or a chore. And I think that's what's happened during the pandemic, during the lockdown. It's allowed people to readjust what it is they actually want to achieve and then find something that's a bit more central, and a bit more meaningful to themselves.
0: It goes back to what you said earlier, John, about having an acceptance mindset and mm. being mindful. And we, we had a long discussion a few weeks ago as well on this as in, you know, um, accepting this is the way life is going to be. And mm. also having a gratitude mindset, count your blessings instead of counting the gaps yeah The deficits
1: yeah it's it's absolutely such a such a a difficult thing to be able to do you know to be able to take that perspective it's almost that sort of deathbed scenario where you you know if you were able to just zoom out on life where I, i often talk about imagine if life is this time scale you can see in front of you from from birth to death, which is hopefully a very long time. And often what we are is we're so zoomed in that even next week or the last week feel like a long time ago. So that ability to be able to sort of pause, zoom out, and see actually how insignificant most of the things we worry about actually are. And I think that's such an important step to then being able to um, develop that that gratitude for what you have. Because when you, when you perform that sort of zoom out exercise, things that seem important at the time become less important, but equally some things that you're not necessarily cognizant of regularly are the things that are really important. Um, nobody lies on their deathbed and says, Oh, I remember 30 years ago I was writing that report. I wish I got it in the day before. Like, <laughs> They they might wish they spent time with
0: family. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I've got to let you go. I know know this has been going on for some time. This will probably be my longest ever podcast interview. Uh, I've (laughs) loved every minute of it. But before I let you go, uh, John, you've been a sports person, a writer, platform speaker, researcher, lecturer, psychometrician. Uh, Have I missed anything out? (laughs) (laughs)
1: a bad karaoke singer I didn't know that
0: now this is a question I always ask my guests because it's so so important especially for someone who is so experienced if you are approached by a youngster a graduate in his early 20s or her early 20s asking for career specific advice knowing what you know now what would be your top three tips to that person
1: okay so um, it's, it's some some question I'm sure you must get some fantastic answers um, and you know how I like to start many answers with a caveat <laughs> so um, this one is that I, I'm always aware of the survivor bias with these kind of things um, just because some things work for me doesn't mean that it's amazing advice and everybody should do it um, I, I often think that when you see the you know, the kind of TED talks where somebody will be saying that they did something, therefore it's brilliant and everyone should do it. Um, Like There's a meme somewhere I saw where there's a guy with loads of money. It's about the survivor bias and he's he's showing how, um, he said, I spent every penny I had on lottery tickets. People told me I was silly, but I carried on and look where I am now. Eventually I won, you know, because... (laughs) that one did but there's lots without a ted talk stage that didn't but you did ask me a very simple question uh so let's do one two three number one would be not to set rigid goals i mentioned about goal adjustment i think sometimes if you when you're young it's easy to set out this here's what i want to achieve and you've got this timeline you've got this focus and there's an awful lot to be said for that but focus on that means that you might miss other opportunities as well. Um, And I I think there's a real travesty sometimes when people do that. Secondly, I'd say do stuff that you're good at because um, it's really rewarding to feel that you're doing something well. Um, So if you can find something you're good at, know that you're good at it and keep doing that because it will get its rewards one way or the other. And finally, um, I would would disassociate career with life life satisfaction. It's one factor. There are many factors to life satisfaction. Um, You don't work forever. Uh, You'll spend a a period of your time where you'll retire and and enjoy life in retirement. Um And to go back to my deathbed scenario, nobody lies on their deathbed, you know, wishing they'd spent all their time in work. Um, know that there are uh, friends and families and hobbies and uh, ambitions that are not career related. All of these things are the things that bring about life satisfaction, so don't ever place your happiness as contingent upon just one thing.
0: Right, so that's it folks. These are the top three tips from a very eminent um, and well qualified person. Don't set rigid goals, do stuff you're good at and ensure that life satisfaction comes from many roots and not just work. We could go on for a couple of hours more, John, but I I know you you have work and a family to get back to. but it's been fascinating. I think we covered almost everything in life and career. I think we talked about <laughs> careers, employability, sports psychology, confidence, mental toughness, um, introversion, extraversion, culture. Quite a few tips, I think, uh, which a lot of youngsters might benefit once they uh, listen to and absorb all, all this. Uh, personally, it's been as as you know, you know, uh, continuing from the discussion we had a few weeks ago. been quite. Uh, enlightening for me as well. I always walk away enlightened whenever I speak to you. Uh, inspiration as well, apart from being, of course, uh, intellectually entertaining. To talk about a lot of the deep issues that society rarely talks about, but probably they should focus on more, uh, whether it is psychology training, or, or relationships, or how to view life in general. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. John Perry, for being on this show. Uh, I hope I don't have to wait, oh, we don't wait another seven years <laughs> <laughs> before reconnecting, uh, uh, but, but uh, it's been wonderful talking to you, and hopefully, I know, I know you're in Ireland and I'm here in UAE, but hopefully one day, once all this whole pandemic scare has died down, you can fly over here or fly through Dubai, since it's a very nice uh, yeah. uh, hub, and uh, we get to catch up for a cup of coffee.
1: That, that, that would be fantastic Binod. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure is all mine.
0: This podcast was brought to you by The Real Finance Mentor. Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you found it insightful and inspirational. If you did enjoy this episode, please drop us a review and spread the word. And be sure to check out more exclusive content on the realfinancementor.com and my LinkedIn profile, which is Binod Shankar CFA. Let's keep in touch. Just add your name to the mailing list on the realfinancementor.com and we'll tell you about new episodes plus book reviews, upcoming events and blogs. Till the next time, onwards and upwards.